You too, huh? <laughs> no, I'm reading one-star reviews oh. of... Of the thing you're reading? Of the book I'm reading, and I feel so just, like, validated. Ah, well. Like, in a good way. So... Is this a new book? Yes, have yeah. you... Uh, before before uh, we get started, though, um, I got a request at some point during the fair week that I forgot to follow through with uh, that we should probably reintroduce ourselves oh. <laughs> on occasion. I'm actually kind of grateful that people are listening enough to ask that question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, somebody <laughs> was talking to me the other at when we were working together at the fair, and they were like, I never remember who's, like, on... And so, well, why don't we've you had, take we, this we've opportunity had, to? We've read had it. cast changes and things That's such fair. as that. Uh, so, welcome to the Semi Bookish Podcast, everyone. Uh, for those who are unaware, this is the Adrian District Libraries uh, podcast that we do like every like couple weeks or so, like twice a month, whenever we feel like, whenever we want. <laughs> and topics can range from you know whatever we want to bookish topics to ish topics, anything that surrounds nerddom. Or library spaces will cover it. Why yeah. not? Yeah. So uh, to start things off, hi, I'm Aaron. I am your supreme overlord of the uh, podcasting room. Um, um, and you're and wearing a fantastic cardigan, by the way. Thanks. Actually, my mom's. <laughs> oh, well. Um, and then I am also the local history librarian, so woo. Um, and then next up is... Um, me? Oh, hi. Well, uh, that would mean I am Tony. Hi, Tony. <laughs> hi. Welcome, Tony. Uh, oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> and I am the Youth Services Library Assistant, which means that I, if your child is still a child, then <laughs> my, all of the library services that deal with children from no matter, as soon as you find out you have them to the minute that you're kicking them out of the house because they graduated, that is... My purview. That's your realm. Realm, yeah, that's that's what Did I do. Did we give you a nickname? Yeah. Mouth from the sun. Uh, yeah. Do you want a different one? We'll, yeah, we'll we, talk about it later. I don't yeah, we, have we a replacement a nickname, so I, it's not like I can gripe, but you know, man. Eh. Oh, yeah. You. Can. <laughs> I was gonna. <laughs> you will tell it to us later, and then we'll I think decide I'll come if up, we yeah, actually want to put know, it out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then last but not least. Hey, it's me. It's Grant. My name's Grant. Ah, why did you sound like the guy who just retired from being the voice of Mario? Did anybody see that? Uh, I heard that it's he retired. Yeah, yeah. But he's now going to be like a like spokesperson for Mario. Well, <laughs> so, so he's, like he's not name. really. Yeah, right. He's not actually retired. He's still the He's coin. just retiring from, be, from being the voice actor for Mar- the Mario games. What he is actually doing is going around being a spokesperson for Nintendo because mm. he's 67 and he probably was just like... I still want your paycheck, so I don't know. I mean, you know. So he's getting the, the oversized gold coins that he uh, collects <laughs> exactly. in his travels. Exactly. So you are. Lord Ish. Yeah, Lord Ish, I guess. That's what people call me sometimes. That's and your name. government name would be? My, my government, government name? <laughs> government. <laughs> government. <laughs> yeah, well, my government name is uh, Grant. <laughs> Granted, uh, oh, yeah. no, I know. Yeah. I always want to follow that up with something, but I never have anything yeah. clever enough. I'm a clerk here at the Adrian what? District Library. I do whatever I do whatever they tell me to do. Would, you know, out of fear. Out of fear, to be honest. <laughs> would it be would, would it be fair to call you Grant the Grunt? Oh, that rather, that's rather horrible. Oh, I don't. I don't know because because I don't grunt very often. Oh God. 
And I don't think of myself as a grunt. So. I'm glad that you don't think of yourself as a grunt. I don't think no, of you, you as a grunt. You know what? We'll just, we'll just forget <laughs> that. Hey, Grant. And, uh, um, yeah. Do you want to do me a favor and tell me what you're reading? <laughs> okay. Fine. Oh. Um, yeah, what are you reading? What am I reading? Or I'm, playing or watching or whatever. Yeah. I'm reading uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem by Hannah Arendt. Which... Oh! Isn't, isn't she the one who did the... Her name is familiar. She's a historian, yes. political philosopher, whatever you want to call it. Yes. There's um, a, she has a famous book that I'm trying to remember. It Carry might on. be this one because this book is the origin of the term, The Banality of Evil. Oh. That's where, is that where it's that like came the subtitle from? for the book. Okay. Um, yes, that probably is it then. But yeah, it's it. she She was present at the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the high-ranking Nazi man. Oh, oh <laughs> in, really? In, in the newly formed state of... Israel. Ah. She was there and she was reporting on it. And then through the book, she kind of discusses how normal people can get pulled up into like a, um, authoritarian systems and stuff. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. It's very depressing, but it's very interesting. I can imagine. But that actually is something people should read or um, read more. Yeah. The first chapter is very, very dry. <laughs> is it? I, I had to push through it. But after that, it's, uh, yeah. it's pretty smooth sailing. Okay. So, um, nice. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's what I'm reading. Nice. Um, honestly, I don't think I've watched anything particularly memorable recently. Mm. I'm watching The Sopranos. Oh. So that, that's, that's, that's taken up the majority of my... Well, there you go. And it's your first time watching The Sopranos? It's my first time watching The Sopranos. Well, that's memorable for you. So much Gabagool. Is it? And it all has to do with the Gabagool. I don't know what that is. So it's some type of meat. Oh, is it? Yeah. Really? It's, it's an Italian meat. Dish is that on HBO Max? Yes, it is. It is okay. Yeah. I, I hope to this tells mind. you that Tony's going to be reading, watching that sometimes. Uh, it, possibly, it's, it's very good. Um, there are some blaringly late '90s, early 2000s, mm. th- like tropes. Sure. Like just the way that they portray the kids, I find very mm. awkward at times. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just a thing, like in that time period where they get older people to play younger people. Blah, 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 blah. I felt the but, same thing about Nip Tuck. Um, mm-hmm. I thought everything was great except for the teenager because I was like, "Oh yeah. come on!" Mm-hmm. <laughs> like really? <laughs> but yeah, obviously, um, I can't remember the main character, the main actor who's since passed away. Oh uh, yeah, James Gandolfini. Oh, uh, he's great. Oh, you know, pretty he's much James Gandolfini. Pretty much everybody's great. Yeah. Um, uh, I foresee it getting better. So yeah. Oh, good, good. Um, all right. Tony, no, what are you no, you're next. Oh. You, you, you know how this works. Yeah. Oh. Right. <laughs> all right. So first of all, I'm gonna get the good out of the way and say that I'm playing Sims right now. Oh, good. I have a cute storyline going where my character is writing and getting bags of money so they can afford a really big house and become a, this giant spellcaster dynasty. So yeah. Woo. Oh well, yeah. That's why I want. Bags of money. Just, um, yeah. yeah, no. Come a spell cast. Yeah. Okay. And then also uh, this weekend, so next episode, you'll hear me rave and rant about Baldur's Gate 3 because I finally downloaded mm. it and bought it. Okay. So uh, okay. you'll hear me ranting and raving about that. Sure. Um, I hear there's tons of stuff with, like, you, you know, there's spells, there's stuff you can change to a bear. You can You can get an owl bear as a pet. Okay. Oh, that. I was alluding to a very specific tempo. I don't know yeah. just yet. I'm really just here for the the elf man vampire thing. Okay. Um, and everybody who plays Baldur's Gate three knows exactly who that is already, because everybody's been 
riding his train since like oh. early access period. Oh. Um, so I've been reading kind of <laughs> technically two books at once. Okay. Um, you want to start with the good one or the bad one? <laughs> let's start with the good one. All right. Good news first. The good one I've been reading. I've been reading A Darker Shade of Magic by V.E. Schwab. Oh, yes. I have heard that's um, good. I yeah. started reading it on uh, through Libby and I actually like at first, I was very confused because I didn't read the little blurb that you get at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't read... I make it a point not to read the summary, so that way I don't accidentally foreshadow everything that is about to occur. Mm-hmm. Because I can and will already predict what's going to happen, and then it just kind of ruins it. Because I'm like, I've already saw this coming, we sure. already know that this is happening. Sure. Yeah. So I didn't read it. I was kind of confused for a bit, but after reading the summary, I was not too spoiled, so I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm actually kind of excited to see where this goes. It follows a guy named Kel who can go in between Londons. There's like five separate Londons, and you he has like a special like magic power that he can go in between all five, and he takes messages back and forth. Um, he's actually the brother, I think adopted brother, to the prince. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the king and queen found him, and they adopted him, and he's oh, part okay. of their family. Oh. So he's not like full royalty but like he gets treated as such by his family i'm trying to picture the current royal residents of london even attempting something like that well like each different london has a different set of rulers like one london it's george i think the third okay and then one london it's a completely different ruler one London, I think it's like Victoria. So like, it just depends on which London he's in. Mm. But he's from one of the specific. I think it's like White London. But don't yeah, ask yeah. me. Mm-hmm. I don't remember off the top of my head because of the other book being so terrible. But anyways, um, so he goes back and forth, and he likes to. What he does is he smuggles people mm. mm-hmm. in between the different Londons. Oh, I see. Okay. And he gets in trouble, and he oh. smuggles himself out to a different London where he meets this girl named Lila who I don't know much about her just yet because she just appeared in the book. Okay. And I'm like 100 pages in. On my oh, table. nice. So therefore, okay. you know, I'm at least a good portion and she's kind of just been introduced. She's not like fully like a character yet, but like okay. she burned down a ship so I kind of like her already. Well, you know. Um, yeah. And so they go, they're going to go on an adventure. And this is like a series, so I'm mm-hmm. going to assume it goes farther. So I'm actually kind of excited to read it. And then um, I saw this book on... Bad news time. Yeah, I saw this book on my book bub. It was the second book in the series. And I was like, well, I can't read the, this one without reading the second one. I mean, the first one. Mm. So I turned around and I was like, do I actually want to buy it right now? And I'm actually glad that I didn't. I went on Libby and I put it on hold for myself and I held off until it came in and so I'm like halfway through this thing and I just need to... I'm actually very curious which book it is. Uh, it's Neon Gods by Katie Robert. Oh, oh, um, oh, okay. And okay. so here's the thing. For anybody who wants to know what this book is, it is supposed to be a modern Hades and Persephone retelling. Mm-hmm. Set in, like, a modern kind of society. Well, yeah, because Katie Roberts is, like, the queen of paranormal romance right now. She's, like... She's also kind of, like, a smutty uh, romance person, but... Well, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Paranormal romance. So, great. Right. Um, So, I start out... It reads... And I'm just going to be bluntly honest, and everybody can flame me later for it. You can send your flames to me at the library, specifically, and I literally will not care. Um, It reads, like, a fan fiction 
that I would read in high school on Wattpad or fanfiction.net if I didn't have anything else to read. Well, again, if you took it this, is a paranormal romance. No, well, <laughs> it's not even you that. Know. It's like I took, like, two characters and I just, like, smushed them together as, like, a thing. Mm-hmm. There's no real world building happening mm-hmm. in this whole entire book. So the mm-hmm. whole entire premise is, is there's Olympus, and Olympus is the modern, like, city. I don't know exactly where this is, but we're... Oh, so that's, like, its own city? Yeah. Oh, and so there's the top of Olympus, then there's the river Styx, and then there's the lower half of Olympus. Sure. Um, so you have 13 gods and or goddesses or whatever. You're 13 people in power. That's your normal Olympians. But the thing is, the Olympians, and they never really touch base on this, which makes me kind of, like, upset. But, like, the Olympians can either be voted into power and they get the name of the god that, like, they're in the domain that they're part of. Okay. Or they can be born into it and, like, raised and then, like, they replace their dad or their mother or something with the name. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. Hey. Yes. Tommy's face says everything <laughs> I need to know. Um, so... Uh, Pers- this follows Persephone. Yeah. Persephone is the daughter of Demeter. And the thing that really kind of irked me the most is, like, especially because this is a modern retelling and I guess you can do whatever you want. But no. her, but her sisters are Callisto, Psyche, and Eurydice. I'm curious to know how that works out. It doesn't because they don't touch on it ever. Okay, so that's they just, just they're just there. She just brought in a bunch of random Greek yes, women. Yes, they're just to be honest, they're just there from the first like halfway through that I've gone through. Okay. And um so they're at this party. Zeus throws a giant party where he well, announces to accurate. everyone <laughs> and proposes to in front of everyone Persephone. She has absolutely no idea that this is a, about to occur. Oh, Her mother is in on it, but they never really divulge as to why Demeter's in on it. They're sure. just like, yeah, sure, she can become the next Hera. But the plot twist is, is that Zeus has murdered his last three wives. The last three okay. Heras. And so now, all of a sudden, it's Persephone. And so she's like, I can't do this. I can't stay here. So she decided to throw in a little Scheherazade just because... Sure. So she decides Why to not? run away. And as she's running away, she's getting chased by uh, Zeus's, like, minions. And she mm-hmm. runs across the river Styx into the lower half of Olympus. Which is how we get Hades, right? Which is how we get Hades. But Hades, according to Persephone, this whole entire time has been a myth, and they don't think that he exists. But he's there, and I'm like, how do you not know he exists if this is a modern world? Like, wouldn't you, like, know about it? Unless he's, like, an underbelly, like, mafia-type dude. But they never really touch on that either. So she's turning around, and she, like, runs across. He saves her. Um, Where is the city supposed to be California, located? because <laughs> Persephone ch- turns 25 in three months, according to the book, which then she gets access to her trust fund, and then she's going to run away even further to go to Berkeley to get a PhD. <laughs> okay, I, I suddenly don't want to hear anything else about this book. <laughs> no. I don't understand. It means nothing. And then, like, all of a sudden, we just have, like, Hades just, like, saves her. And then he just keeps her captive in his house. And she decides to strike up a bargain where she stays for the last three months for winter. 
with Hades. Okay, so anyone who's listening to this podcast, <laughs> you have one. You have homework. <laughs> you need to come here to us, or call, or email, and please let us know if there are any good paranormal romances that you would recommend because this is the standard plot to every paranormal romance no, I've ever heard just, in my life. Like this... It's always something that doesn't make <coughs> any sense. To be honest, if you t- <laughs> to be honest, the only thing that has to do with Hades and Persephone slash Olympian gods in general is their names. If you change... So there's not even any no, kind of like... No magic, no nothing. So it's just like an allusion to the... Yeah. Okay. So if you just change their names to, I don't know, I'm just going to go Fifty Shades of Grey style Yeah, here. right. If you just like, changed it to Bella and Edward, well, no wonder, it would be the exact same plot and nobody would know the no difference. No wonder it feels like Wattpad because this it is the kind of thing that you would do on a fan on fiction a, site and yes. you don't have to explain it because yes. everybody knows oh well this is, this is you plot. know like, Nick I, and Charlie coffee shop AU not yeah, that you need no. more coffee shop and Nick no, and Charlie but, like, but so, like we get it like it's like I, you don't need to I feel like uh, this is a like I feel like this is like a fan like and this is how I explained it to my friend the other day I'm like I feel like this is a modern Sasuke Sakura like fan fiction that I'm reading on fanfiction.net in high school where I don't have to know a lot of the craziness of the intricacies of the plot mm-hmm. because I'm already well aware I'm reading fan fiction of it. Yeah. And we're just going through the motions here because, like, I don't need to know any more plot than just, like, okay, I just want to put them together in a mafia AU. Like, that's it. Right. Like, that's what I feel like I've just read. And I just... And also the smut she's is... Really, she's really hot right now, though. She is, but the smut is like just kind of like... Like her and Colleen Hoover. The smut is just kind of like, great, go read something on, like, AO3, please. For the love of God, if you if you want to read this, just go read fanfiction on AO3. Like, you will have a better experience. Oh, that really is as bad... Actually, that's worse than I thought it was going to be. But no, okay. All right. no, I had um, to DNF it. But, um, but Tony, isn't it inspiring that stuff like that can get published? No. I wish that it was inspiring. There are moments. I have had... No, I know. Stephen King does say, and he's not wrong about this, he said that a revolutionary moment for him was reading a book. This was before he published Carrie, and he was reading a book that was, you know, hot. And he thought, oh, I can do better than this. (laughs) Or... I have done better than this. And he was like, that's a great moment for a writer. Ride that wave. I literally read this and I went, I could possibly, I don't write anything ever. And I literally thought that I could probably write something. Yeah, some people are just terrible. But But I I might give her another try with another couple books that I have in my thing. You're bold. Um, But just to see if there's any difference or if she's just like writing it kind of like manual, like I'm writing it to a strict like... Sure. Oh, yeah. Order of things. Sure. Um, sure. I want to feel better about this. Uh, Tony, what are you reading? <laughs> okay, so um, before I get to what I'm reading, I'm going to give a sort of an entertainment update. Yay! Um, because I've had so much fun catching up on things. So I have, uh, because I'm the person that I am, I have officially binged Heartstopper season one and two twice. Yay! Now, um, I will do it again probably next week um, because it just is that delightful i never want to be without this lovely lovely tv show it's fantastic um so get the to netflix and do that the other uh entertainment update is also queer romantic related um specifically mlm but anyway um 
Red, White, and Royal Blue, the movie, is on is an Amazon Prime exclusive movie because they did the production for it. It is how to describe it without being too ridiculous. Okay, so I'll say this. I went in not I actually went in with some hope. Like I went in thinking, all right, I'm gonna go in, I'm gonna watch this, I'm gonna see what I think. Because the last time that people got all fussy about something was my policeman, and I actually really enjoyed my policeman. Um, and I I found everybody's criticisms of it. Uh, ridiculous. Um, there are criticisms to be had, small things, but I don't think I've ever heard of that. So my policeman was a is based off of a book by I think it's Beth Ann Roberts. I think her name is, um, and it's basically this. It's Harry Styles. It was one of the two Harry Styles movies that were sort of like competing with each other. Um, everyone panned. Don't worry, darling. It's about straight people. I really don't care. So I'm not watching it. <laughs> even Fair. Though love, even though I love Harry Styles, I'm like, eh. Um, so my policeman was the. I would call it the buy one, but you know, you really don't know. Um, but I would just say it's basically the story about this uh, police officer who it finds himself falling in love with a man and a woman at the same time. Um, and he's having a full-on affair with this man while he is married to this woman. And um, his wife finds out he does not... I can't remember if he knows that she finds out or not. But I know that she does find out and it really gets under her skin and they stay married and so you have two storylines happening where you have the one happening in the past with the three of them sort of getting to know each other and that kind of thing and then you have the one in the future where the male lover has fallen ill and needs somewhere to stay and he's written to the wife um and she is constantly like trying to get her husband to, to be like come on, let's bring him to the house. We're going to take care of him. And the husband is just completely like, nope, don't want to think about it. Don't want to look at it. Don't want to, you know. And finally, I'm going to spoil this. Sorry. Finally, she gets to a point where she is like, you know what? This was never about me. Bye. But it's done done (laughs) in such a way that is so human. That's the thing I loved about that movie is that it, it really showed how capable we are as people to understand something um if we just pay attention to the people that we love we can sort of get through things and we can understand things and we can make decisions based off of empathy i love that about that movie i know it's not sexy i don't really care um but something that is sexy (laughs) is the red white and royal blue movie (laughs) it it is i mean first of all they're very pretty so that helps well obviously but they the first fourth of the movie, I will say, was very rushed um, in terms of, like, the, di- the different beats that you need to convince the audience that these two people actually would be together. It was pretty rushed. But then there's a moment in which one character is sort of expressing to the other what his life looks like. He's like, this is what I deal with all the time. This is how it feels to be me. That kind of thing. And the, the, the other character sort of listening for the first time. And suddenly, that whole moment works so well that I was like... Oh, yep, I'm there. And for the rest of the movie, it just, I thought it was beautifully done. Um, You know, it's not meant to be revolutionary. It's a straight-up romance story. So, I mean, you know, it does all of the things it's supposed to do. Um, And it's not shot in a particularly fascinating or, you know, revolutionary way. It's, It's just a movie with pretty people who fall in love. But I liked it a lot. It was really nice. And the I think the ending did do something 
I don't want to say that I've never seen before, but it, it was moving in a way that I've is rarely it different? seen. Is it different than the book? Or I don't know. You know what? I have the book to read. I was going to read it beforehand, but then I never got around to it, so now I'm going to read it because I've seen, and I'm like, all right, I can... I, this I can get down with. It's, it's, it's a really... It's just a really good movie. Um, and... What am I reading? Yes. I am going to tell you what I'm going to be reading, except tonight. Not tonight as in the people who are listening to this right now tonight, but tonight is in the time in which we are recording this. I will be joining the rest of the Star Wars fans who matter. <laughs> and we will be watching Ahsoka. Ooh. She is coming. 9 p.m. Two episodes. <laughs> Are you excited? I can't even tell you. And I'm prepared, and I don't even know what I'm prepared for. I'm just like, oh my god. So, you know, that's what I'm going to be doing. And what I'm reading right now is a book called Husband Material by Alexis Hall. No, not Husband Material. Boyfriend Material. Husband Material is the sequel. That comes later. (laughs) Yeah, right, it is. Yeah, it's literally the sequel. But Boyfriend Material is the first one. Um, And it's, you know, it's a romance novel about this uh, guy whose dad was a rock star. A really terrible... Like, famous, but, you know, he did all the drugs and all the things and whatever, whatever. And so this kid has always grown up under the shadow. And now his dad has come back doing a reality TV series. And so he's suddenly thrust the entire family back into the spotlight. Except his family hates his guts because he's never been around. So this kid has to, like... He's not a kid, he's like 23, but he has to manage, like, what it feels like to be an adult whose life in so many other aspects is failing... But in the one aspect that he's being he's being watched all the time by people and he's just like, but my life isn't anything and he meets this guy who's supposed to fix the problem and they'll I haven't we haven't met the guy yet because I'm really it's super early, but yeah. It's the writing is really, really captivating and easygoing and um I think I'm gonna really like reading Alexis Hall's books if if I like the story, because he's he's got a it's pretty good at this. I've also been reading a bunch of Alexis Hall interviews recently, so I'm kind of like interested to see who he is as a writer, and particularly in romance, because he's interesting. Anyway, there's my very, very ridiculously long introduction of <laughs> things that I'm entertained by at the moment. I want to talk about death. That was a very just like abrupt change. It was almost much like, like death. death. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the transitory state by which we exit life. Um, in which many characters also exit yeah, the so, page. Yes. I want to talk about yes, I want to talk about death in like entertainment, death in fiction, um, because it's something we kind of accept. Um, right. But I'm curious to know, like, what do we think about I guess my first question would be what makes death in a story something that you like something memorable like what is what what would make a memorable memorable death in a piece of fiction for me it's a terrible question i know but yeah if i'm emotionally attached to the character okay that's dying yeah so like for example uh when you were going to ha- when you were talking about reading what is it storm Born Archives. The Stormlight Archive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, like, when I started reading that, um, I turned around, and I, I, I have other things where I'll also use this as examples, but, um, 
when you first start reading it, you're following, like, one character, and there's, like, four separate, like... You explained it to me that there's, like, four separate sections that he kind of, like, wrote them as kind of, like, different prologues, and so they're completely and utterly different. Because he's an insane person. Yes. One of the prologues, <laughs> I say prologues loosely, followed a side character <clears throat> that... Um, He's the newest guy in his little, like, army group or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so this is his first rodeo going into this, like, whole entire fight. But he's put with, quote, unquote, the best, like, group. Because they've never lost anybody. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting here thinking, one, in my brain, I'm going, oh, well, that's not going to happen. You literally just put yourself in that position of saying, well, we're the best, and now it's going to happen now exactly it's go the opposite. Right, because it's a story. But yeah, exactly. my brain is also going, because he's so nervous, I'm thinking to myself, and he, spoiler alert, he's not, but I'm going, well, he might be one of the main characters because of the fact that they're presenting... Sanderson is presenting him as an underdog. Sanderson is basically putting him almost in, like, the most perfect position to have his whole entire group go out Mm -hmm. and everyone but him die. Like, they are putting him in, like, that perfect position. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are literally, like, writing it down, like, right then and there, like, okay, so that's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. And so I feel safe in that moment to get slightly attached to the fact that he feels like such an underdog character. Yeah. Yeah. He's really nervous. He's probably going to go through some trauma. This is going to be fantastic. Mm -hmm. I can go through that trauma with him. Mm -hmm. No, uh, he dies, too. Yeah. And so I got upset, and I remember walking into the workroom and telling Tony all about this. I was like, I am upset that this character has died. <laughs> Why did they need to die? I was hoping that they would be a character because I was rooting for them. But, like, in that sense, like, if I can get emotionally attached, and, you, and I will give Sanderson credit, unlike Robert, where I cannot get attached to any of the characters. <laughs> but, like, I will give Sanderson credit. He wrote... That tiny little underdog character who only shows up in that one chapter to fuel the main character who is the leader of that division, who Mm -hmm. is the one who ends up surviving out of everyone else. Yeah, yeah. I was so attached just by that one chapter. Yeah. Like, that's how well that was written. Like, this is similar to, like, playing Resident Evil 4. And in Resident Evil 4, there's one character... I think it's Louise is his name, and I never remember his name. And that's just because he's so, like, quietly, like, there for a hot minute, and then he leaves, and then... I know what I want. I know what I know. I, I, I can't type words. Yeah, it's Louise. <laughs> Louise. And he pops in at one point because Leon gets knocked out, mm-hmm. and he gets tied up, and Louise is on the other side of him. Mm-hmm. And they're both tied up together. Mm-hmm. And he's just kind of there as a character for a hot minute because if you don't read the little, like, notes that you find everywhere, you don't realize that he's an integral part of why the infection is happening in that village. Sure, sure. Um, But he's just kind of there. and He just appears. And he is written as just kind of like a one-off where he's just... You think he's just going to come save you every once in a while and he's just kind of like your little um, lifeline for a hot second every once in a while to save you and then you can all just like leave together at the end yeah Yeah. um but 
later on, what happens is both Leon, Ashley, and Louise are all infected with the Plaga, which is like a giant parasite thing that takes over your body and kills you slowly. Um, Louise gets the cure Mm -hmm. because Ashley needs the cure because she's the president's daughter. Yeah, right. She definitely needs... So Louise gets the cure that all three of them need to be able to get it. And in that moment, because of how he's been helping you little bits along the way, you're kind of attached to him. Yeah. And then the parasite jumps out of his body a la, like, alien style, and he dies. And you are... Well, not really. I think it's one of the other bad guys that kills him in that moment, but... You know, similar concept, he dies, (laughs) but you are attached to him in that moment, and you're like, oh, no. Yeah. And um, if I can get emotionally attached to a character in, like, just a few interactions, that death to me will mean something. Sure. But if it's just kind of, like, death willy-nilly, like, and I've come to expect it. Hi, George R. R. Martin. Um... (laughs) If it's just kind of like a willy-nilly death kind of thing, and mm-hmm. yes, I realize that does make the plot go farther, but if it's just so much in such short spans of time, sure, either sure. via the TV show or via the books, mm-hmm. I'm not going to get too attached because, like, it's not going to really mean anything because at this point you're just doing it because you have to to get the plot to move forward. Like, meh. Okay, okay. Grant... Death in fiction. What makes for a memorable... Mem- memorable. I can't speak today. Death for you. Oh, a memorable death. I would say a memorable or good fictional death has to uh, either makes It has to be consistent with the character and mm-hmm. or consistent with the piece of fiction that it's in. Sure. Or it, like, it, like, it, like it makes sense with the world. Yeah. Um... Yeah. Like, for example, um, in No Country for Old Men, the book or the movie, take your pick, um, a certain character uh, is dispatched quite suddenly after a lot of buildup. Yeah. Um, and that I know that threw a lot of people off, at least mm-hmm. with the film adaptation. But when you think about it and you take into account the themes in the world that this that um, it takes place in. Yeah. Uh, it really works out, and it's consi- it's consistent. So I'd say, yeah. I'd say consistency is uh, sure, sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I asked this question, and now I'm thinking about it, and I don't know that I know what I think constitutes a, <laughs> a memorable death in stories. I, it may, what I was considering is that it may boil down to the idea that that is a suitable end for this character Mm -hmm. in the sense that when it happens and maybe even how it happens is just as important or maybe more important or maybe would even lead into why it happens Mm -hmm. you know um and if it's if if it's unavoidable i feel like for me if it's unavoidable that makes it that much more memorable um because if i can explain a way out from how that character died if i I can say well it didn't have to happen that way because of xyz these things and if i can rearrange the plot to make it not happen then 
it holds less value to me. It becomes less significant because it, then it feels to me as though the the author is sort of yanking me around and emotionally. It's like, oh, well, I'm going to make you feel this way because this character died. And it's like, yeah, but so like I, I at that point no... it doesn't mean anything because like i will i will say the arbitrariness of death can be used to go to, to strong effect but i i, I see what you have an example uh <laughs> you just threw him in the spotlight. i mean i have an example <laughs> what is your example i, don't I mean know i'll, I'll say no printing for old men again sure it's, i it's on the brain. do think that the only death in the harry potter series that that is absolutely arbitrary um is cedric's death because it comes out of nowhere. I mean, it is, and it's fast. I mean, it just not Fred. Me. Fred was in a war. I know. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's like it's like there's there's nothing. I mean, it's not. It. I mean, one could argue about the arbitrariness of war, but you'd have to argue about the arbitrariness of war. I mean, right. you know, in a war, people should die. If no one died at the Battle of Hogwarts, then that would be just. Right, no, no, I'm, no. I'm just joking. You know, I'm yeah. just joking because Whereas, I'm emotionally like, attached to Fred, okay? Yeah. I mean, like, but I, you know, there's a way to explain the death of every single character. Yeah. Even Hedwig, who gave her life in a sense because she was, she's protecting she, Harry. She's also supposed to represent the death of his childhood. No, I hadn't thought about that. That's fair. Um, but Cedric's death, there's absolutely no reason whatsoever in the plot except he's he just was, there there (laughs) and it's it's like what like it's (laughs) so rude um and so fast do you think it's effective though i think it's very effective it's very effective i think it's effective in in depending on who you are as a reader if you're not someone who actually because you don't really grow to care about cedric and even in the book you get a lot more of cedric in the book than you do in the movie but you still you, you also get a lot more of him because, like, it, he appears in the third book, so you have you, a little bit of more context but you don't really with him. You don't see him in the movie. Not important in the third. No, but like his you at name least, is there. You're at least introduced to him. Eh, not really. He's a. You know, he's a kid at the school, but there's so many names in that book that you're kind of like, okay. Um, like Ernie McMillan takes up more of the plot of book three than <laughs> he really does. Than, and, and then he never shows up again. You never know what happens to that kid. Um, you have Colin and Dennis Creevy, who, like, Colin's in there for, like, the second book. And Dennis I is his little those brother. Were like, oh, yeah, I forget that. I think Dennis was made up for the movies, if I'm not mistaken. One of the one of them was invented. It wasn't Colin. Colin it's was Dennis. Book. I think it's Dennis was invented. No, in the it's... There was a little boy in the fifth movie... His name is, like, Nigel or something. No, yeah, he was also invented. He was invented. No, but, like, because it's supposed to be, I think it's Colin who's supposed to die in the books. Colin dies. I don't remember. Um, And then... But, yeah. But in the movies, it's his brother, and it's, like, some weird, like... And it's different from, like, so if you look at the... I mean, okay, so, for example, you look at the Hunger Games, right? Everyone, not everyone, but many people when Rue dies, you know, that's a moment. Like, it, it's... That is a it's memorable a, It's a powerful moment. I don't know that I would call it memorable. It, or maybe, maybe... I mean, I don't know. I mean, can you call it memorable if every single person who's ever encountered the Hunger Games always remarks upon what happens to Rue and that they were upset? And they're, is it memorable? Maybe. No. I, I feel, feel like, like it's serviceable. Like it's it, memorable it sort of... to the character as kind of like a 
and plot forward, but to the reader who, like, at this point is going, is, he has experienced a whole bunch of death up until this point and is going to be experiencing much more later on because there's two more but books. You, but you haven't experienced like, like, personal death, I think. That's the thing is that you, like, in the book, I think that's one of the reasons it's so striking is that none of the deaths that happen in the arena before that matter to Katniss. Mm-hmm. Um... So that if you're a hypersensitive reader, you might be the kind of person that should not read The Hunger Games at all because that's it's baked into the premise. But if you are someone who can handle it, it's like, oh, well, yeah, that kid kind of does it. You can write it off and then... I have a question. Yeah. So, so do you think Rue would have survived if she put a bunch of makeshift weapons in her pouch and maybe some various foods or berries to serve? I feel like this is a leading question. Maybe. Maybe. Here's the thing. Kangaroo, kangaroo. Oh, I completely. Okay. Anyways, I'm gonna move on I've to. Der- I've, I've derailed okay. the whole. Thing. Uh, it's fine. No, no, it's okay. I'm gonna ask a different question. Um, okay, so is death or why is death necessary in fiction? Oh, I don't even know the answer to that question. I don't know if it's necessary, necessarily. Um, (laughs) But uh, um, I will say that it's one of the most universal themes because everyone must face it at some point. Everybody does face it. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, In many ways, it shapes almost every facet of our society. mm -hmm. Oh, that's very interesting, actually. Because... (laughs) Ooh, ooh, Tony's face. Don't, Tony just gave a face. I want to know more. Tell me more. <laughs> what is this? Uh, uh, Professor Star- Grant. What is this? Starship Troopers? Yeah, right. Professor Grant. I want to know more. No, really, I kind of want to know more. It's an interesting thought because, in a way, yeah, I mean, is society shaped like that? That's a whole other thing. Um, because it makes me think about, again, We're getting philosophical reflecting here. Reflecting that back to storytelling, it, how. It's almost like, how is it possible for any writer to avoid death in fiction? And yet, plenty of people do. Um, plenty of stories do. Um, even if... Because I think, you know, having a death that has happened off-page, you know, something that is impacting your character, that's one way to do it. But you're not infecting the reader so much or the viewer so much. I mean, you know, that death happened. And maybe you could use it as a way to, like fuel something in the character like if something someone else is close to death or something you know that but if they're not dying it means it's not the same thing um so it's kind of like how important is it for us to see characters in a state of mortality if that makes sense like why should we have to ever go there that's a really terrible it's a crap question, I mean it's an, like, e- it's, it's an easy way to raise stakes or um it really create, create anxiety or dread tension or tension yeah I mean mm-hmm. in, in, in some ways that can be a crutch mm-hmm. also but, an easy way to further along plot just in general mm-hmm. like you have your main character and all of a sudden they just see their best friend die in front of them the a la Hunger Games well, now your main character has a motive for doing X, Y, Z. And it's used as kind of like a way to further along the plot. Like, sure. 
I'll go there and I'll say these words and you can take them how you need to, but like all of Batman, if his parents didn't die, would we really have Batman? No. I mean, presumably. So to further along the plot, use (laughs) the crutch of both Mm -hmm. his parents dying Mm -hmm. and giving him that sense of justice Mm -hmm. to fix Gotham that he moves forward with the plot and that's where then we can branch out and do all these different storylines and different types of things. Yeah. That's... It's like the Flash. Like, if his mom didn't... If he didn't witness his mom die and see some weird, like, science, like, yellow Flash stuff happening... (laughs) He and his dad didn't get like. It was thrown, me, Barry. <laughs> and his dad didn't get like well, thrown the, in prison. Yeah. Or something like he wouldn't have a motive for like being really obsessed with trying to get his dad out and trying to figure out the murder. That's true. I mean, if, if you like, think his, about how powerful, like, if you really death if, is with Full Metal Alchemist and how it entirely fuels. Exactly. Like, like that's if yeah. if Barry Allen's mom died in like a just a regular car crash, we would not have Barry Allen being obsessively like trying to fix things and then possibly getting struck by lightning and being the flash. Right. No. So basically death is kind of like that plot. It can be used, yeah. It's used as a motive a lot of times. Yeah. Do you think that death is used as a plot device more now, like in the modern world, now that as lifespans increase and everything, death is less prevalent? No, No. I think that honestly, I think that death in storytelling these days is too frequent. And I think it's it too throwaway. It is very, it's very throwaway. That's why I mentioned yeah. Game of Thrones earlier because a lot of but times to Game me of, it just feels like you're. But like, I think <laughs> that Game of Thrones is often accused of this unfairly. Um, I think no. one of the most memorable deaths I've ever seen and experienced is Joffrey's death um, because it's something at some point you want as a viewer, like all of us in a moral, moralistic society, we all want that little you know, person. Like the Red Wedding. We want him to like, we want him to die and we want him to die horribly. And we know that this is a, 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 a world in which people have no problem brutally murdering a child. That's how I, it I, that's I'll, how the series is. He's a little kid king or whatever. Yeah, right? yes. boy king. I, and that's how the story I'll, starts I'll, is I'll that they like, they shove a kid out of the top of a tower and that starts everything. That kid doesn't die, but the point is you know that there are adults in this world that who, don't care. Who will brutally murder a child, and every character on the board has a reason to brutally murder this child. And but for me, what makes his death in particular memorable is the way that they shot the scene. Yes. Because the utter mayhem that's happening at this wedding where everybody's already really cringy because it's Joffrey getting married. So do we celebrate? If we don't celebrate, is he going to uh, treat us like us. he treats his wife? Oh, my God. That girl, we're totally handing her over to that kid. Is no one going to do anything? Like, you can see all of the adults and in the room. And then Grandma is like, trying, listen, I got this. You we can got see this. all of the adults in the room, no matter their power scale, their age, their anything. They're all balancing this really tricky thing of, like, 
this kid really we has this gave. much control and we're gonna do nothing about it and then he's poisoned to death and it's horrifying yeah, I will bring, say bring, oh, sorry. my favorite death in that show that I got such actually to catharsis out of Ramsey and Baelish I don't really feel anything about Ramsey. I have another death. question after that yes. Yes. in relation to that um, but brief aside, I had never seen any any episode of Game of Thrones at all. My dad was watching it. I came into the room, sure. and it was Joffrey's <laughs> death, and it was terrifying. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, what yeah. am I watching? It's horrifying. It is. And I, I took credit to the writers. That's that's pretty good. Is that the same episode where the guy like pushes that eye, that guy's eyeballs? Yeah, no, it's actually like, in the same area. I don't think it's the same it's episode. The same okay. episode. Okay. I think okay. it's a couple okay. episodes but later. Both, both that's both. Oberyn Martell. And both that was like during the champion thing. Moments. Yeah, that, yeah. That was I little... that was that I walked in on that one and I wasn't watching it at that moment. Ugh. Like I was just like walking through the room and I got into that moment. Yeah, that wasn't a death I want to relive. I was like, <laughs> oh no, Pedro Pascal. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was Pedro Pascal. That was Pedro that was Pascal. Pascal. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Before he was Mandalorian. <laughs> Do you think it's good that we feel catharsis at some characters? Deaths? Do you think it, or do you think it's neither here nor there? I think that's good writing on the behalf of either a the writers of the television show or the writers of the book. I don't know that I would use the word catharsis. I think that, like any tool of writing, one did you feel some Schadenfreude about well, it? Well, no, no. One one should never feel <laughs> only one thing because of this one tool. I mean, I think that depending on the story, you can feel any number of things. Um, I do think that there are, in fact, that no, there really are. If you get to the end of Return of the Jedi and you feel catharsis that the Emperor has died, you might no. be feeling the wrong emotion. No. But what I feel is victory, is joy. I'm like, yes, we won. But that's because the Emperor is a cartoon character. Right. I mean, you know, he's not actually a real person. Like, nobody wants to... Like, no. But when Darth Vader dies a few scenes later, yeah, you might want to feel a little bit of... Even if it's just because of Luke. You may not feel anything for Vader particularly unless you're like me and you just watch the Clone Wars every year then you do feel some kind of like rich there's a rich emotion there because you've seen this character go through all of these things and you know whatever but I the people who watched that original trilogy I remember feeling this as a kid you do feel something for Luke because like he finally gets his dad and like no, he doesn't get his dad. Like, his dad sacrificed himself. Like, that's a big moment for someone who's only wanted this, like, moment with his dad, you know? Um, what was I going with that? Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I feel like, I mean, death can be different. It can mean different things. I mean, um, Obi-Wan Kenobi's death is not cathartic. It's circumstantial, you know? And you're just kind of like, oh! Oh, and maybe you should, I mean, I think something you feel there is like, like a pit of despair kind of moment, but you don't have very long because they're going to be attacked. So there's all, I don't think every single death should be written as feeling cathartic. Oh, I I, I, I didn't mean every death. It's, (laughs) I think it's. You asked the question. I, 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 I think it, I think it, to me, it just depends on one, how the character's written. Mm-hmm. So, like, for I'm using my Game of Thrones, for example, because that's where I mentioned it earlier. But like, with Ramsey and Baelish, I had a I had a very like big connection with Sansa as a character. Like, 
Oh, I see. She was one of my favorites. Sure, yeah. And so me feel like... Yes, I know in the books it's a different storyline because currently if we read the book, she's up in the veil and she's like somewhere completely different. And this is followed, like her storyline with Ramsey is actually specifically for a different character. Oh, sure. Okay. But like if you're watching the show and you are attached to that character, once it reaches that like antithesis of how he dies Mm. and knowing his... And the thing is, I love Ewan Ray in, in the first place because that's oh, he's who plays. Yeah, character, he's yeah. great. But like, yeah. knowing the storyline of his character and what he does, the end that he meets at the hands yeah. of his own dogs, sure, is kind of like to oh, me as somebody who's that. a Sansa fan, I'm yeah. feeling a sense of justice here. Sure, sure. And it's kind of the same thing with the Peter Baelish character because he's. Oh, I was so glad he died. Like, he's basically, like, if we want to be real about it, he's kind of a, the cause of a lot of the stuff that happened. He absolutely is. And it's literally <laughs> just because... From the very beginning. And it's literally just because he had a hard-on for uh, Caitlyn Stark. To be honest, though, I was glad he died because he was an anchor to the plot. And that is not something that you should feel when you when you <laughs> when you're... Right. Enjoying a, a series or anything. But, like, to but me, I was I like, like, oh, please get, he's such I a waste fe- of space. Like, I, I felt like <laughs> at that moment, like, I realized there's only like the four Stark children really left, but like, I felt like it was a good sense of justice of like, yeah, no, I think it was they clever. got to deal with him yeah. mm-hmm. in their own way yeah. at that moment in time. Yeah. Would it, would I have wished that it was all of the children who got that kind of sense of justice out of it? Yes, but is that going to happen because it's a George R. R. Martin book and, like, two two of the children are already, like, dead? Yes, but, like, I still feel, like, a great sense of justice because, like, those characters have suffered this whole entire time because this one man's actions and his crush on their mom caused all of them to have to deal with all of this. Sure. And so it's a lot of, like, yeah. that kind of... Vindictive justice, catharsis, however you want to call it. Yeah, no, no, I think, yeah. Character deaths are hard. Um, yeah. Five minutes. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, no, character deaths are hard, and I don't know how I would... There's not enough to ask another question, so we're just going to move on. Uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of <laughs> character deaths or oh, characters no. who never die, because in oh. comics, the one rule is if you kill a character, you can always bring them back. That <laughs> is the true rule. <laughs> just, Lazarus you know. Pitt says hello. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, I guess we're going to do a smack, an actual smack. Oh, no. So Superman... Yes. Batman or Wonder Woman. I honestly can't believe we've done not done this one yet, but apparently we haven't. We might have, but I just might have put it back in the box. Oh, Wait, Superman, it. Batman, Wonder Woman? Yeah, yeah. I don't remember us doing this one, but... <laughs> who would you snog? Who would you marry? Who would you kill? Marry Superman. Good choice. Snog Batman. Yep. Kill Wonder Woman because she could always abuse the power of her truth rope. You know... I, guess that's, I mean, I'm kind of similar. I have never considered that before. But to be she honest, totally and, could. And, and unlike Superman, whose people have been destroyed, she also has, 
I feel like her attachment to the Amazonian race may supersede so her attachment you. to you. I would just, in my well, personal opinion, and it's just because I want to be the bat bomb, I would switch. But that's just because I want to be bat bomb. No, that's fair. Um, so I actually, how would she abuse the truth rope? Uh, what if she doesn't think you're telling the truth about like what yeah, you did she, yesterday? So she like smacks you but, with but the because, truth rope, and she's like, "Yo, you have to tell me the truth now, but, even though you are telling the truth." Because there should there it, should yeah. be trust in a relationship, and I feel like if she ever felt like, you know, that could you know it could be a fallback. Grant Jesse, I have never thought of you as a romantic. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of sweet. Yeah, you're right. That's true. She would be. Which mm, not saying mm. she's a bad person. I'm just saying. Well, I mean, you know. I mean, of, I, of, I haven't read the comics. Of so. the three, she's honestly okay. Everyone who loves Wonder Woman is probably going to kill me right now. But sorry, she's honestly, in my view, the least interesting. So yeah, I'd want to kill her too. Um, and you know, I would get the entertainment of watching my Kryptonian husband, you know, do murder in my name. Why not? <laughs> Clearly, I've always wanted to be a monarch of some kind. I don't know. You know, it's not my fault. <laughs> So yeah, there we go. Thanks, friends. That was nice. Yay. Yay. Characters died, people died, that happens. <laughs> <laughs>